Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dr. Howard Koh. I'm very pleased to welcome you to a new video series entitled What CEOs Say, co-sponsored by the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Business School with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Our overall goal is to explore how the private sector can leverage its resources to promote health and well-being for society. And in particular, we want to meet business leaders who have committed to promoting a culture that advances health for employees, consumers, communities, and or the environment. We want to hear from leaders about how they made that commitment, what changes they've made, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them, and the lessons learned that they want to share with others. Thank you for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be Thank here you. with you this afternoon. Now, for many, you symbolize far more than a very successful business leader and CEO, but but um, a movement, a movement that um, tried to influence and has influenced the world beyond Unilever, and including and perhaps especially other CEOs. What influenced you uh, to think about your role as a CEO differently? What influenced you to uh, see the potential role you could have on a, on a broader stage? Yeah, thanks Amy for the opportunity and uh, for being here. <coughs> I was just looking at what leaders say. I think we should change the title, especially nowadays what leaders do is actually more important. Mm -hmm. This world is uh, long on yes. words and short on actions actually. And the say do cap as we call it is quite significant mm -hmm. and that's probably one of the challenges you're saying you're part of a movement <coughs> or you're creating a movement that is definitely what we're trying to do but if you if you see where we are right now in the in the scorecard of the state of the world i think we cannot really congratulate ourselves not individually not as a company the um the situation that we find ourselves in is a uh, economic system that uh, we increasingly discover leaves too many people behind, uh, plays with our planetary boundaries, uh, drives uh, inequality, and uh, the system will not function if we don't change that. So what drives us is really business having to take a responsibility in a system that gives them life in the first place. And, and I firmly believe, and I've always believed, that business cannot be a bystander in a system that gives them permission to be. Uh, we are living in a very difficult period right now, be it what it is, where we have some challenges that need to be addressed, but it happens at the same time as global governance doesn't seem to function as well as we really had envisioned it for different reasons. Mm. But uh, it's a moment for business to step up. And uh, what drives me personally is really the human development agenda. I think that uh, for a long time uh, I've realized how lucky we are to be in the positions that we are. But that's not the case for the majority of the people in the world. So it's our duty to put ourselves then to their service. And the more we do that, we find that the better we are off ourselves as well. So perhaps it's very selfish. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I didn't hear selfish in there. You know what I do hear a little bit is old-fashioned. I mean, I think this does hearken to another era in which people had more responsibility. Business leaders had a sense of responsibility largely because they operated in tangible local communities. And then as companies got more global and more sort of disconnected from 
the lives of communities, yeah. Yeah. they became, they took on a different movement. Yeah, what we've definitely seen, and it's not to pinpoint in one point of time in the history or not, but I would say when uh, the sh famous uh, Milton Friedman shareholder primacy started to take over, we became servants of the financial market and forgot that the financial market should be really servants of the real economy. We became shorter and shorter term focused and, uh, and shareholder primacy took over. I've never believed in that. Uh, business is not here to serve your shareholders, businesses here to serve society and do that in a good way. And by doing so, hopefully your shareholders will be better off. And that's a model we've put out at Unilever. That's a model that I always will be fighting for. But it requires quite some systems change right now in the situation that we find ourselves in in the world. And that's what I'm focused on, on mm -hmm. how do you create these uh, right uh, tipping points. So how did you help Unilever overcome the inherent short-termism that's right. created by shareholder. So I happen to be the first CEO coming in from the outside in a long history. Mm. This company started in the 19th century, but we had a little bit of a challenge in uh, the, the 10 years preceding my tenure. And um, they decided to go outside. They, they picked me. They could have picked a better person, but that's what they did in the end. And um, <laughs> what, um, what I went, I, I had come from uh, other companies. I'd worked in two other companies. And it was very clear to me that because of being a CEO of this great institution, they were not just automatically going to accept me and that mm. I really had to earn mm. that respect. So the first thing I really did was try to go back to the roots of that company. Uh, reading uh, Jim Collins's book a long time ago, you know how you get some of these sentences stuck in your mind. And one of these sentences that stuck in my mind was uh, nurture the core before you stimulate progress. So this company needed to make a lot of changes, had actually become short-term as well, and actually had become a victim of that short-termism mm. in terms of underinvesting in people, in factories, in brand support for a consumer goods company. And uh, going back to the roots of the company, I thought was actually more driven at that time by wanting to be accepted in the company and knowing very well that the owners of that was yeah. on me, not on them, um, you know, that uh, you, you, you uh, had to spend a lot of time trying to understand the history of the company. And what I found was that in, over time, uh, we probably had forgotten some of the things. And Lord Lever, who created this company in the uh, 1800s, was a, you know, a man with a profile, but actually he understood very well what the role of business was. He called it shared prosperity. And, uh, you know, he built housing in Port Sunlight at that time well be, uh, for the workers that are very desirable even today, but he built them before the factories were there because he they wants first the housing. He fought for pensions in wow. the UK. Uh, you know, he, uh, he ensured when World War I came wow. that uh, the women were paid when the men were gone and that the jobs were guaranteed when they would come back, uh, that type of thing. Uh, Port Sunlight soon became a study ground why people lived longer and healthier lives. So there was an aspect of alcohol and smoking that wasn't allowed for him either. <laughs> so he, he had his balance right, but he created this very, um, uh, very uh, good concept of uh, what he called shared prosperity. Even when he went into the House of Lords, interestingly, he took the name of his wife. Even until today, that is uh, not done by anybody oh. else, which is kind of uh, you know amazing still where we are. So this man was special. I went back to that, and I went back to the roots of some of these brands, brands that uh, we were abandoning or underinvesting in, or even saying, let's stop them because they were so old. Brands like Lifeboy, which even were called Lifeboy, simple bar soaps to help uh, you know, children reach the age of five, or brands like Domestos to attack the issues of open defecation. So we started to look again and bringing that purpose back into the uh, company. Very much resonated. I also 
figured that if we wanted to build this company back up again, you cannot do that in the red race of quarterly reporting. I had to create some space. So when I became CEO, I figured the first day they hire me, they're not going to fire me. So, <laughs> not so, the first day. Uh, not the first day, which turned out, unfortunately, for my wife to be true for 10 years. But, <laughs> but, but um, uh, we stopped quarterly reporting. We stopped giving guidance. Uh, we moved our compensation systems to the long term. Uh, at that time, the share price actually negatively reacted by 8% because the company wasn't doing well. They thought there must be some bad news coming. But I just wanted to create that space and send the signal to the people that we were going to rebuild this company. We put audacious objectives behind that as well, obviously. But uh, that was the first sign. And, you know, uh, obviously you don't change a culture by saying things and you don't change a culture by, by your first day there. But it sent a message and we were going to grow the business. I was very fortunate to buy the Sarah Lee business in Europe. The company hadn't made any acquisition for 10 years and that was the first acquisition again. Then we bought the Alberto Colfer brands here in the US, uh, brands mm -hmm. like Tresemme and other things. So it started to give a sign that we were in business to grow. Then the second stage that I had to get the company through was really make it externally focused. You know, most of these big companies, they fall in love with themselves. We all have that problem, you know, so then we write emails to each other and <laughs> we think we're very productive. So um, I wanted to be sure that we were there to serve uh, the people that we needed to serve, which are very much the people for us at the bottom of the pyramid, the ones that are left behind. And um, one of the things I had to do was make the company outside in instead of inside out. So we created this um, Unilever Sustainable Living Plan where the objectives really were to ensure that every of these brands was addressing a real life issue. I had the benefit mm. of being a member of the high level panel to develop the Sustainable Development Goals. The then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was courageous enough uh, within a UN system to ask someone from the private sector uh, to be there amongst the 27 people. Uh, the first meeting, they all looked at me as if the problems were all in business, I think. <laughs> Where we came out with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, was a little bit more balanced. Mm. But you had to get the private business, in the, the private sector involved to address these societal issues. Governments are just not able to do that by themselves for funding reasons, for capacity reasons, innovation reasons, and all the other things. So I've always believed that if business is 60% uh, of the global GDP, 80% of the finance and flow, 90% of the job creation, we have to play an active role. And, and that's what we were trying to do in Unilever. We tried to link that to our brands, a corporate strategy that obviously was uh, more responsible. And frankly, it was an audacious plan when we launched it. Lots of cynics, skeptics, as, as you would mm. expect. Um, Internally and externally? Yeah, broadly, because it was a different way and I was really disinviting some of our shareholders. I was making it clear what type of shareholders we wanted. Uh, most of the CEOs will have such a short tenure that they dance to the pipes of their current shareholders. Whilst I was really saying, you know, if you don't like what we were doing, put your money somewhere else. And I discovered naively it was easier to get rid of shareholders than to attract new ones. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it had to be done. It had to be done. And um, slowly but surely, we built up the company. And I was very blessed that we had very good people. We brought very good people in and the results came in. And, and at the end of the day, it's probably the results that carried even the skeptics that had enough of a critical mass to keep accelerating our program. If I regret anything is that um, in, in the crisis when I came in in 2007, 2008, the situation globally was probably quite difficult. Mm. It was quite difficult. Many companies were hunkering down and cutting costs and we were coming in with a growth strategy. But um, probably this Unilever sustainable living plan that we put out there in hindsight wasn't even aggressive enough. 
although it made us feel uncomfortable at that time, I, I still would have said if I look back in these 10 years, we could have done more. Been even more aggressive. How long were you, how long did you focus on Unilever and revitalizing its growth and its sense of purpose before going outward? Well, I would be a great study case for your school because I definitely have an attention deficit syndrome. So um, <laughs> when I, when I uh, in Unilever, uh, when we brought out the sustainable development plan and uh, the company, after a few years, we got the company back into a good strategy and in growth. And uh, we then added some elements, especially the elements of human rights in our value chain as well, mm -hmm. which came really after the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory. Uh, 1,050 women unnecessarily lost their life. So I think we were we hired someone, uh, worked with John Ruggie and others, and, and really, w and so that was a very important moment to strengthen not only the economic and the environmental part of our program, but also the social part. We were probably a little bit ahead. And we, we still are the only company that have issued twice a human rights report, which is a mm -hmm. little bit regretful that we didn't get more companies to follow us on that. Yeah. But then I discovered, uh, or collectively we discovered obviously, that in order to really have the changes at impact, we needed to move from not only getting our own house in order, not only working our own value chain, not only doing a certain amount of advocacy, but that we really needed to focus on the more transformative changes. And, you know, Viktor Frankl, uh, when he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he said very well when they built the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast of the United States, they forgot to build the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. So I feel very much that we have, with that enormous liberty that we got to be in 190 countries to serve two and a half billion people a day with our mm -hmm. products, that there's also an immense level of responsibility. So we started to look more at how can we use the size and scale of Unilever to drive this transformative change. Mm -hmm. We created uh, a global consumer goods forum with all of the major consumer goods companies in there. We had to make commitments to stop deforestation by 2020. We created the human rights standards at the whole industry. We put uh, simple things together, let's say the Cokes, the Pepsis, the Nestles and us, and changed the, the cabinets to, uh, to natural refrigerants, uh, that's 3% of global warming. So we created these alliances that allowed us to drive more of these uh, step changes. And that became more interesting because I then discovered after five years or so that I could use the size and scale of Unilever to drive these more transformative changes. But then after 10 years sort of, I came to the conclusion, first of all, 10 years is, is, is great. And, and we were very blessed that we have a great leader that we that we uh, developed internally, Alan Job, and, and he was ready to take over. And then you have to step aside. That's the institution that comes first. But also, I felt the shackles of Unilever would prevent me from doing some of the things that need to be done to drive more of these transformative changes now at the global level. So we created a broad network in Unilever, certainly in the last five mm. years, working with uh, many people in partnerships. Uh, but now that needs to be stepped up. So that's what, uh, that's what I will be focusing on next. And that, that's that's terrific. So let me let's go back to um, sort of coming on board Unilever and deciding. I think you've referred to this as a culture of purpose, yeah. and and yeah. and using those words and deciding. So it's I, I love the emphasis on actions, not just words, but, but words matter too. And words are one yeah. of the one of the tools you have for for influence. So after that, after sort of coming on board and and announcing this new way of, of working. How did you figure out priorities? How did you establish your priorities? You know, we didn't really. We, I, I'm not going to rewrite history yeah. and try to Good. be a hero and the smartest CEO that you've ever interviewed. The, um, <laughs> because you, you'd be disappointed. We really, um, 
we, we started something that made us feel uncomfortable. And mm. for me, the threshold was, could I get the leadership team to a point where they would be uncomfortable, uh, where they would have the courage to move forward at a bigger and faster scale than they otherwise would. They're smart enough and also in our system to, to figure out how to do it and to fine tune, and that's obviously happened. We made mistakes, we learned some things, and that's what you get anyway when you charter a new path that nobody has treaded. It's also full of skeptics and cynics, so for that reason you need to be driven by a stronger sense of purpose and a bigger picture, and that purpose very much resonated. Half of our people are millennials, and they're very much purpose-driven. They want to join companies that, where they can make a difference in life. They want to leave this world in a little bit better place than they mm. found it. And I found it relatively easy to uh, communicate our purpose. Mm -hmm. But for us, it was really making hygiene commonplace, if you want to, and we, we translated that into uh, growing our business, but decoupling our growth from environmental impact mm. and increasing the overall social impact, which for us was actually reaching a billion people, improving their health and well-being. Um, we had reached at that time as a company, probably was the best of our efforts, over 100 plus year period, about 30 million people that we had done hand washing. And so when we put this billion target out there, it's a little bit audacious because not no government can do it. Um, but looking back in the now 10 years, we've reached about 750 million people. And I'm convinced that uh, some people would say that's a big failure of 25% or whatever you want to calculate it. <laughs> but you know, coming from 30 million after 100 years and doing in 10 years the other 750 million, it has created an aspiration and a mindset. And that's with things like oral hygiene or hand washing, nutritional yeah. programs. And they're very much embedded into our brands and they're very much into the, uh, the footprint where we are, which is about 60% of our businesses in the emerging markets. So we like that. Wonderful to hear you keep saying we. You have not left. Well, <coughs> the, the, the we comes from that nobody can do it alone. My job is the well, easiest. That's true, too. So yeah. it's a different we. My, yeah. my job is the easiest job in the company. I, I very quickly discovered that I knew the least in the company. Uh, I didn't tell it to too many people. That would have frightened them. But, <laughs> but my finance manager knew more about finance than I did. Uh, the people that run our regions knew more about these regions. The people that run brands like Dove or Knorr or any mm -hmm. other ones knew more about these brands. So quickly you discover that you don't know much. And um, so your task is really to ensure that the system works, that you put yourself to the service of the organization. And the more you actually do that, uh, the better results you get. And I was very blessed that we indeed had 170,000 wonderful people that made that possible. These, uh, these businesses cannot be run by uh, rules, laws, or regulations. If you do that, you stifle innovation, mm -hmm. you'll kill the company. Mm -hmm. But if you run it on principles and purpose, and if that purpose captures the hearts of people, uh, you can get amazing results, you know. Uh, leadership is, uh, people uh, would use the word courage, perhaps, when you talk about leadership, mm -hmm. but they forgot to go back to the origins, perhaps, of the word courage, which comes from the French word cur. So yeah. it's as much the brain and the heart. So what we were trying to do was that. The first thing we did when I came in, I was very blessed in my previous life to have met Bill George. And Bill was at that time still the, the CEO, chairman of Medtronics. And they made pacemakers, and they had a factory in Rome. At that time, I was working in Geneva and chairing the Chamber of Commerce. And I said, I had... Uh, every quarter or so I invited people in that impressed me to talk to our employees and, and get a little piece of knowledge. And Bill came in and then he said, come to my factory and roll. And I went there with a different mindset because it's pacemakers, total quality control. You cannot get a hair to come in because the... But what really impressed me and what I left with was every quarter they had someone come in 
uh, that had gotten one of their pacemakers. Uh -huh. At that time when I was there, it was a, was a woman, wonderful woman, and she talked about how it saved her life, how it connected her with her family again, and all the other things. So he succeeded in bringing purpose right in the middle of the company. And, um, and then he wrote his wonderful book, uh, True North. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and so I said to Bill, you need to help me because we need to create a cadre of leaders. And the first thing to do to create good leaders is to know yourself. I don't think you can be a good leader if you're not a good human being and you don't know yourself. So we spent with our top team the first year with Bill and others uh, creating this, uh, uh, defining, uh, finding your own crucibles and all the other things. It resulted in some people changing their careers, some even leaving the company. But it's important that you find out who you are and what makes you motivated. And mm. then the second year, it was about how do you use that to influence others. And then the third year, how do you get results? So we were very patiently building this up. And our thri Thrive programs and purpose programs that we still have currently are the highest score programs. So, yeah. so uh, at the end of the day, it's about uh, you finding what makes you tick. And if you then can collectively get that energy behind a common purpose that is strong enough, you can move mountains. And that's what we were trying to do with uh, Unilever, thanks to so many people that, uh, that bought into that. Not always easy, and obviously you're very demanding in the results as well, but it's, you know, it's, it's surprising to me that uh, how much that unlocks our engagement scores. Have, uh, you know, we, 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 I should go back, we have uh, we get two million people applying to us every year to work, and we're the, the third most looked up company after Google and Apple on LinkedIn. Wow. And we are not a, a company brand like Google or Apple. And um, we get two million people applying to us. Obviously, we cannot hire the two million people, but that's an enormous <laughs> movement itself of, of people. And they apply because of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And then within the company, in most countries, we would be preferred employers and an engagement score of 96%. We always are 100 on, on, on glass door. So with the changes that are there, with the pressures that people have, um, if you want an organization to function, you need to, you know, since we're in the in the health sector here now, you need to have your physical well-being, uh, you have to have your emotional well-being, you probably have to have your mental well-being, but you also need to have your spiritual or purpose well-being. If, you, if mm. you miss that pyramid, I don't think you can perform to the maximum level. And that's what we were trying to create in the company, and by, by achieving some of that at least, uh, we unlock these results that people think is impossible. <laughs> I, I, I love the combination of the starting with purpose and the sense of purpose, and you had this natural ability to connect Unilever to a sense of purpose by virtue of its history, if and company, then the audacious. Uh, yeah, but if a company doesn't have a purpose, what's the purpose of the company? <laughs> there you go. Why do we have yeah. them around in the first place, you see? If it's only to make some people richer, you shouldn't buy from them. If it's to make this planet worse than, than what we inherited, you shouldn't buy from them. We've done more damage to this planet in the last 20 years than in its five billion years of existence. So, you know, if we think it's cool to buy a $1 t-shirt and someone else dies in Bangladesh, that's your decision, but then you're a murderer. So we should be very careful what we do and which companies we should let be around and use our purchasing power is one of the most important things. We've seen the market of ethical products move mm -hmm. very fast. We've seen people finding out more what companies are doing. We're seeing mm -hmm. the investment community getting interested. So broadly, people are starting to realize what we need to do. Mm. Uh, you, you, you won't meet many CEOs who want more air pollution or more people mm -hmm. unemployed or more people going to bed hungry, but collectively, we're not able to 
solve the issues at the scale and speed that is needed. So we could not, we should not give ourselves too high a scorecard. Unilever neither. Mm. I've often said during my tenure, if Unilever does all these things and scoops up all the prices, but nobody else does, I, I still can't go home and look my children in the eye. We okay. fail. We, we will have failed. Yes, the audaciousness of the goals, of the goals in terms of the numbers of customers you would influence is, is, is part of it. And then you have written in the past that the problems we face, and I think you mean society, humanity as a whole, are so big, so challenging. There's a certain humility in recognizing you just can't go after them alone. And that would be alone as an individual, but also alone as a sure. company, even an enormous company like Unilever. For sure. When we launched the Sustainable Living Plan, which uh, had 50 targets, because I also believed at that time that we needed to be more transparent, because it's that transparency that builds trust, that is the basis for prosperity. So the more transparent you operate, actually, the better you will be able to, to, to function. But um, what uh, we, we uh, said, we said two things at that time which actually have surprised me. We said we don't have all the answers, which was apparently the first time they heard a CEO say they don't have all the answers. It's a separate interview uh, by itself. And, and the second thing is that we can't do it alone. These issues are just of such magnitude. You know, Einstein said it well of the definition of insanity is to do the same things over and over again and expect uh, different results is not going to work. So we have to come together as adults and we have to start working at different levels than what we did before, forge these broader partnerships and, and have more audacious goals behind that. And the more you bring people together from the public sector, from the private sector, from civil society, the more you can actually uh, achieve. Uh, in Africa, they have a wonderful proverb that says, if you want to go fast, you go alone, but if you want to go far, you go together. And, and we've certainly Beautiful. seen that uh, happening in our case. How did you think about for, uh, forging partnerships? How do you go about picking partners with whom to work and then building that relationship? Well, first, it is uh, a collective level of uh, modesty and, and humility because uh, the, the challenge with these big companies is that you think that you might have the answers or that you think you have the, uh, the dollars to spend, so that gives you then also the share of voice. We have to be very careful. The, uh, it starts with defining the problems and linking these problems to some of our brands to solve them. And then if um, one and a half billion people in this world no access to uh, clean drinking water or, or sanitation would be a problem. Four mm. billion children dying before the age of five of infectious diseases like pneumonia, diarrhea, would be a problem. 90% of the people that are uh, subsistent and living in, 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 uh, in, in situations of food security uh, stress would be subsistent farmers. So the world has enough to go by. You need to pick which is relevant for your company. And then you see that these enormous, uh, what you might call problems, are actually enormous opportunities. And in order to get to those opportunities, especially the bottom two and a half billion people on the pyramid, if you want to. You need to work in partnership and, uh, and find people that have the common goals. So fairly quickly, we identified uh, five uh, great organizations that we thought had the skill globally. UNICEF, uh, Save the Children, uh, we did some in water. Uh, um, we had uh, uh, Oxfam, and so we, we took these partners and put programs behind that. 
uh, with them, and they became better because these people were closer to the reality of, of the situation. And, uh, and that's cross-sector as well. Cross-sector, and then we worked with the development agencies, uh, very big partnerships with DFID. We created a transform partnership that is trying to reach and improve the lives of 100 million people. We worked at that time with the Clinton Foundation. We were one of the biggest partners when Russia was running uh, USAID and uh, programs on hand washing and sanitation, for example. So we forced these partnerships to go at scale. You know, Miriam, who is here, uh, we were running in, in, the, in uh, South Africa partnerships with all the public schools, with, with the government. But you need to work with the government, otherwise how can you get into the public schools? You need to work with these NGOs mm -hmm. that can mm -hmm. do the training and, the, you know, and, and so forth. And when you form these partnerships, they become better. They also become more embedded. They don't depend on the flavor of the week or whatever the CEO thinks is cool this time and then tomorrow something else. So you create societies. You create societies and that is what you want. And the more you create that and lift people out of poverty, the better you're off yourselves as well. We're building now a tea plantation in Ru Rwanda that, uh, that I agreed with uh, Paul Kagame. The, the youth unemployment in Africa is a big issue. It will have half of the world's youth in 30 years' time. You see the problems already coming in right now. So uh, working on agriculture and thinking about creating smallholder farmer jobs is very important. The reason I wanted Unilever to stay in the tea business and expand it was not actually to sell more tea. That's for other people to figure out, and we have a lot of good people to do that. But this tea is ideal to create jobs for smallholder farmers. You can give them two acres, and you do soil management, pesticide management, drought-resistant bushes, and all the things that we know how to do, and you can create livelihoods. So for me, it's a question of livelihoods. I, me I measure success in the billions of people we touch. Wow. And going forward. Yeah, and unfortunately too many people measure success in the billions of dollars they make. Mm. So as long as you measure self-worth by net worth, so to speak, uh, I think as a society we have a challenge. The metrics really matter, clearly. How do we get, how, how do you think about getting people to adopt different metrics? Because we seem to be absolutely wedded to the financial metrics. Yeah, we define na narrowly uh, success, there's no question about it. When GDP was invented around the World War, ah. actually was invented in the US, it was meant as a measure of industrial output, but the guy who invented it, his name escapes me now, was very clear that you shouldn't use that to measure the, 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 the health of an economy. We don't measure clear air, we don't measure quality of education. In fact, the more wars we make, the better it is for our GDP. The oil spill, oil spill of BP in the Gulf added two and a half percentage points to the mm. GDP growth of the US. But if we keep, uh, if we take care of our forests and protect them, it doesn't get into the GDP. So we, we have a weird definition of success. And that is why many people are looking at a, a concept of GDP plus. At that time, uh, Bhutan, which had its natural happiness index, was being laughed about, but it has a lot of uh, sense. So. Capitalism can function uh, if we move the definition not only to, uh, uh, to from uh, uh, maximizing return on financial capital, but if we also move it to social and environmental capital, then capitalism can function. Right now in the U.S. even, a country by excellence in capitalism, at least that's the label you give yourselves, mm. only 15% of the people believe that capitalism is working for them. <laughs> and do you see the stress, the stress in the system, in the political system, and everything coming out of it. So if we say to capitalists, uh, optimize not only financial capital, but also 
economic and social, we can solve it. So one of the things we, for example, need to do is in this redefining value is, for example, putting a price on carbon. The, the main issue that we're currently struggling with in terms of priorities is climate change. That's uh, a tremendous uh, pressure on society and that if we don't come to grips with that and stay below the one and a half degrees, uh, all the other things that we're working on doesn't mean anything. That's why Greta Thornburn, the Swedish girl from 16 years old, said, yeah. why do we go to school? She has a very good point. It doesn't make any sense to go to school if you know that you can't live in this world 30 years from now. You might as well then do other things and enjoy the few moments you still have to live. And, and but this is the seriousness <laughs> of what we have uh, yeah. collect collectively created. So climate change is probably one of our major issues uh, that need to be tackled first. We're, mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. on the trajectory of well above three degrees, which is uninsurable and unlivable. The uh, WWF, World Wildlife Fund, uh, put a report out called The Living Planet in September, October. And uh, we are losing species at a thousand times the normal rate already today. And you know, at one point in time, you might have to ask yourself the question, when is it our turn? Um, it's not a battle between men and nature. It's a battle <coughs> for our survival. And nature will be there. Mm -hmm. um, Hubert Reeves, who was a philosopher in Canada, he put it very well. He said, a man is the mo most insane species. He worships an invisible God and <laughs> destroys a visible nature. Yeah. Not realizing that the visible nature he destroys is the invisible God he worships in the first place. Yeah. Beautifully put. So that's what we need to correct. Huh? As long as a dead tree is valued higher than a tree that's alive, we're in trouble. Absolutely, and and that's the and that's the truth. That's where we are that's right now. Yeah. So we have to start valuing it. Right. We have to put it into our accounting, and efforts are starting to happen. SASB, accounting for sustainability, mm -hmm. uh, uh, just price here. Uh, the World Benchmarking Alliance, and so many efforts are popping up because people know what needs to happen, but now we need to aggregate that. Same, yes. same thing again for scale and impact. Yes, yeah, so how do you see the, the sustainable development groups sort of developing over the next five or so, ten years? So um, we, in the absence of governments not functioning very well globally, we have a unique opportunity that in September 2015, 193 countries were at the UN, including the Pope, and they signed what was called the Sustainable Development Goals. I yeah. have the pin here on my uh, lapel, which is 17 goals, and the goals overall objective of the goals uh, is to irreversibly eradicate poverty and do that in a more sustainable and equitable way. So in other words, not to leave anybody behind. These are 17 goals. So at a time that the world doesn't function, that we have a hard mm -hmm. time to deal with issues at a global governance level, we at least have these goals, this moral framework to go by. And the more companies, obviously, they have to play an active role, and governments, we get interested, aware of these goals, also to understand the potential that is behind these goals. Um, you know, then, then hopefully we can unlock it increasingly at scale that you're asking for. We are now at the point, sadly enough, that uh, to implement these sustainable goals would cost about three to five trillion dollars a year. And we have a hard time now getting agreements to move that forward, as you know. Climate change, this country would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Although there's a lot of good things happening, your government is not exactly cooperating. <laughs> and, uh, um, but uh, on each of these 17 goals, we are willing already today to incur costs that are higher than the implementation of the total goals. So whilst you might not have enough people that might have their moral compass, like Bill George would be talking about, or their true north very straight, mm -hmm. um, there are enough then that might uh, be, become more aware of the economic case. You know, as I said, it costs three to five trillion dollars. This world currently spends nine to 11 trillion dollars on conflict prevention and wars. Wow. And the numbers go up. 
that's 9 to 11% of the global GDP, that we are willing to spend on, mm -hmm. on consequences without really taking the time to go on the underlying causes. And this is a challenge because the political environment has become shorter and shorter term. If you find a politician that can think beyond three months, you're lucky. So um, it is a moment that politics being difficult that we need to uh, put other people together, including the private sector, to start to de-risk this uh, political process and to be able to still have people focus not only on the symptoms and panic with short-term actions, wrong legislations, but that we really take time to look at these underlying causes and, and try to address those. Do you have recommendations for other CEOs today who would like to follow in along this path and create a culture of sustainability? Well, there's a lot of good CEOs and that is obviously, uh, you know, they might not all get their share of voice, but we're very blessed with a lot of good people in this world and many of them uh, are actively involved usually in one part of the sustainable development goals or mm. things that are relevant for their businesses and that's the right thing to do, driving it into their value chains. Uh, and so it's a lot of good things happening. We need more CEOs that actually will go beyond their companies to drive this broader uh, transformative change. Mm, that's one of the reasons I took the shackles off because mm. that's we need more people. That's one of the reasons we created the B team in uh, globally where we take about 20 of the most courageous CEOs, uh, the Richard Bransons, Mark Benioff here, Mo Ibrahims, Ratan Tatas, myself and others, to, to be a little bit more courageous. Courageous on things that count, you know, the first things that count is basic protection of human rights and dignity and, and standing up when you know countries like uh, uh, you know uh, we, we now see countries reintroducing the uh, Shari laws for example or there's still countries that have the death penalty for LGBT communities and or people deprived from the basic dignity of having food when they go to bed at night so we have to fight for that and create space and deal with these governments corruption transparency so we have a group of courageous leaders that goes beyond but there's no question in this world right now that we are short of leaders and trees, and that's mm. why we need to invest in it. And your series that you're doing here and uh, our ability to talk to the uh, younger student community is also partly an effort to uh, create these broader purpose-driven, longer-term, intergenerationally focused leaders. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a category. <laughs> I think we could I have know, a course on that. Yes, yes I take it. Well, what what um, what's on your mind as we finish this conversation? We get close to running out of time. What should what should people really take away? Well, it's too late to be a pessimist. So, yes. uh, but what um, yes. what is on my mind is really is how can we um, create these tipping points around things that count, mm. and how can we use some of the moments that we now have the G7 coming up, the climate summit of the Secretary General, the fact that countries need to resubmit their SDGs and actually Paris plans at the same time in 2020 is an important year. How can we ratchet that up and rise to the level of uh, of what humanity expects us to? If we do, we will also have a better situation where by including more of our fellow citizens, I think we'll also stabilize and make the political system stronger again. And, uh, and uh, you know, we uh, hopefully then also protect this wonderful planet Earth for future generations. So mm -hmm. what we need is more purpose-driven leaders. We need people yes. that really uh, stand up and go beyond their own circle of influence and actually enlarge that. Huh? In, and that's what I remind all everybody of. You know, my father worked in a factory. We had six children at home. Uh, I wouldn't have been sitting here if I wasn't born in the Netherlands where education was free, where we had a piece of bar soap. 
where we worked hard for peace because I was born just after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. My parents had, didn't have the education because they were deprived of that from the war, so they invested heavily in us to be sure that we got it. And um, so they put the common goods ahead of, of, of their own interest, and they're better off for it. And uh, we need now to go back a little bit more to getting these uh, leaders that are that understand truly that uh, not only you need to be a human being, but you also need to put the interest of others ahead. You know, the Dalai Lama said it well uh, when he said that uh, if you seek enlightenment just to enhance yourself or your own for your own benefit, you miss purpose. But if you seek enlightenment to help others reach their goals and objectives, then you are with purpose. And I think that's what we need to do. We need just to create more people with a stronger sense of purpose. Uh, leadership is leadership is the act of harnessing others' efforts to achieve something important. I think, and and that's yeah. what you've done in in within the company and beyond the company, which is just such a powerful model. Yeah, it goes beyond giving energy to others. It is actually unleashing energy in others. So there's a different, and that and, is and also harnessing uh, it in the direction yeah, that yeah, is yeah, going but to. very much starting from the individual. You know, the, the, the three basic drivers that, that we need to keep in mind is that we fight for dignity and respect for everybody. Wherever we are, wherever we are mm -hmm. born, there are some basics that we should give everybody. That we fight for equity. Mm -hmm. uh, men and women, same rights would be, would be a good example of that. And that we operate with a high level of compassion where we can put mm -hmm. ourselves into the shoes of others. And we are the very fortunate ones. Our life is good for us, but we need to spend our time then being sure that it is also good for for others, and you know, during at least my ten-year tenure in in, uh, in Unilever, which has had difficult times, easier mm -hmm. times, and challenges, and all that, uh, at least I've always tried to keep in mind that we're there for a bigger issue than what I sometimes felt was, you know, I feel sorry for myself, or, mm -hmm. or these are the biggest challenges. Why do I get them? Mm -hmm. You know, my wife and I have a foundation. Maryam is actually on our board for uh, blind. We now have 25,000 children that are officially impaired in e in Africa in schools. But if you see uh, blind and deafblind, and you see people working with them at pittance of salaries, and you see these kids wanting to be teachers and ministers of education, or the other day one wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian, etc., then you just know what life is all about. And if you keep that in mind, you keep, uh, as we say in our part of the country where I come from, you keep both feet on the ground. And that's what we should be doing. I think that's where true joy comes from. Uh, yes, as well. Ultimately, it's very selfish. We're did back you, to selfish. Did you have to? Did you find you had to um, convince people that what you were saying made sense, or was it? Well, uh, probably some people were, were were probably a little bit more uncomfortable. So you have to deal with that level of discomfort. You have to give timelines. You have to give up capabilities. It's not that people disagree in essence what you try right. to do. It's just that you need to then also be sure that people have the tools and the structures to do it. Hence, not doing quarterly reporting removes, for example, a right. boundary or compensation systems that are different could remove be could affect different behaviors. So you need to internalize those challenges yourselves and put yourself also in the shoes of others. If you're a procurement person and it gets enormous pressure to get the lowest cost uh, 
uh, ingredients all the time because there's profit pressure on the quarter or that needs to be maximized. It's mm -hmm. difficult to invest in some of these transitional programs that some of them undoubtedly will cost more money. You might be better off at the end of the tunnel, but you know, some work has to be done in the beginning. So you need to put capabilities in place, you need to put funds in place, flexibilities. But I've always asked myself a very simple question. You know, We are willing to invest in factories that pay out in three, five years if you're lucky. We're willing to invest in IT systems that might be long, less long now, but 10 years. We're willing to invest in training for people that might be 25 years before you really reap all these full benefits. But for some reason, we have a hard time investing in the future of humanity. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't. But with, with um, I, I hope and I actually believe that more and more people are, as you've said earlier, waking up to the, this opportunity yep. and this message and, yep. and this responsibility. Yeah, I think it's happening. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's happening. Yes. And uh, now we need to harness all of that and drive it at speed. And this is where my energy will be going. How wonderful! Well, I have only time left to say thank you. No, it's thank a you. privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. for your time. Yeah. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.